Uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 11, if you know that passage in the Bible, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Uh, Hebrews 11 is often referred to as the roll call of the faithful. Uh, and there's a, a repeated refrain in Hebrews 11. And it comes in this uh, letter that's really a sermon letter that's all about Jesus and how great he is and all that he's done and how everything in the Old Testament was leading to him. And then it gets to chapter 9. It talks about how he's our great high priest and we're saved by faith. And it talks uh, about in the Old Testament, all these people that did all these things and they were walking by faith. And so that's the refrain in Hebrews 11 and by faith, Moses and by faith, Noah and by faith, Abraham. And it starts to go through this whole list of all these people in the old Testament and the things that God used them to do and the way he was working. And so it's become kind of, that's the the title it's gotten, Uh, or we often refer to it as the roll call of the faithful. But when you start to look at the list in Hebrews chapter 11 and and you start to see all the people that are named there and the things they did and the way it's talking about them and what they've done by faith. It's quite a very group of people from from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds and all different sorts of things that they did. But also, if you know the Bible at all and you start to read through that list of people, it's not exactly everybody that had sterling reputations. They didn't all just kill it all the way through. Right. Like there were some some bumps and bruises along the way. And you start to read through that list. And you've got a guy who, uh, in celebration of God bringing them through this great flood, gets off and plants a vineyard and gets really drunk and passes out in his nakedness. And then you've got a guy that swindles his father-in-law and his brother. You've got a guy in there uh, that's a total coward. You've got some people that are adulterers, a prostitute, three murderers. All of a sudden, you've got this list of the roll call of the faithful. And you start to look at them and you're like, they're not really all that great. And I think when we talk about the roll call of the faithful, we should say, well, the roll call of the faithful really is God who is faithful to these people, even despite their mistakes and their struggles. But by faith, God does all these incredible things. And so when you read Hebrews 11, it's this beautiful picture that God is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in kindness. And he's the God of not just first chances or second chances, but the third and the fourth and the fifth all the way down, that he's so gracious. And think about that in Hebrews 11 and those second chances, because as we get to Jonah chapter 3, that's exactly what we see. And so we've been walking through the book of Jonah. And the story of Jonah is a prophet that God calls, and he says, you're going to go to Nineveh, and you're going to proclaim this message that I have. And he says, okay, he hears God, and he immediately goes, and he does the exact opposite. And he gets on a boat and instead of going to Nineveh, he gets on a boat to go the opposite way to do the exact opposite of what God told him to do. And in chapter one, you see God allowing him to feel the consequences of his sin as he brings the storm on this boat. It becomes clear that the storm is because of Jonah's disobedience. And it comes to a head with them throwing Jonah overboard. And as he's thrown overboard in the complete failure of doing the exact opposite of everything God told him to do, God brings a great fish that swallows Jonah. And in chapter two, he has a moment of repentance as he cries out to God and he prays in the belly of this fish. And at the end of chapter two, the fish spits him up safely on dry land. And that's where we end in chapter two. And then we open to chapter three and we read these incredible words. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it in the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. 
And so I want you just to think about that. As I read that and I think about Jonah and his complete and total abject failure in chapter one, he does literally everything the opposite of what God tells him to do. And yet God pursues him and he's teaching him and he's going after him. Uh, We talked about this a few weeks ago. And even in that, in chapter one, God uses his failure. Right. Remember, they throw him over the board, overboard of the boat. And then the the storm stops and all the sailors that didn't know God start to worship God. And so even in his failure, God is faithful and he's doing what he's going to do in the midst of it. But Jonah is a complete failure. God comes and saves him miraculously by this fish, spits him up on dry ground. Instead of saying, I'm going to go find a prophet that's obedient, that does what I ask them to do, that says my thing, which is what I think most of us would do. If you hire someone to do a job. And they do the exact opposite of everything you ask them to do. You usually go, I'm going to go find somebody else. You don't usually go back to that person and say, hey, would you try that again? But in chapter three, at the beginning, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And he said, I want you to arise and go to Nineveh and tell you what I'm telling you to say. And so what we're going to think on this morning as we look at chapter three, it's pretty simple and straightforward. But as we look at this, two things. Who does God use and how does he use them? Who does God use and how does he use us or use them in this? And so when we see Jonah and what God's talking about, we see him giving this second chance to Jonah, who's a complete failure in every way of what God asked him to do. So much so that he did the opposite. And so when we open up and we start to think about this idea of who does God use and we think about Jonah here, chapter one, two and three. When we think about Hebrews chapter 11, or I'd say even if you just start to read through the whole of the Bible and how God uses people uh, to proclaim his name and what he's doing, the answer simply is this, is that God uses broken, sinful people. He uses people that are rebellious. He uses people that desperately need his grace over and over. And so God comes and he calls us into his family. He brings us from death to life. By his great grace and he invites us in, he adopts us, his wayward children that have rebelled in so many ways in our sin. And he invites us back in and he begins to breathe life into us. And then he immediately turns around and starts to send us out on mission to proclaim the goodness of who he is. He uses sinful, broken people as the Holy Spirit begins to remake us. And part of God's doing in that is part of our sanctification that is growing us more into his image. And so he sends us out. And as we go, oftentimes we we fail and we're like Jonah in chapter one and we blow it. But God graciously teaches us through our failures. He continues to pursue us. He continues to show us. He continues to teach us. Talked about that just last week as Jonah's realizing all these things and how God's working and teaching him in the middle of his failure in chapter two. But he also teaches us through our obedience and the fruit that comes through that. But the simple truth is that God uses broken, sinful people. And he's always doing that. And he's gracious and he's kind and he's long suffering. And he can use anyone despite what your past may be. That's really good news that when you think I've blown it and I've 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 removed myself from being able to be used by God in great ways because of the things in my past. And then you open the Bible and you read through the roll call of the faithful. And all it is is a bunch of people like that, that God used in all these wonderful ways. 
And so really, really simply, who can God use? He can use anyone. No matter where you've been, no matter what's happened in your past or where you've gone, God can use you. And he's calling you to be part of his plan and the, the great things that he's going to do. And I think if we went around the room and we, we talked about theology, talked about kind of the heady part of what the Bible says and what it talks about in these things, most of us would say, well, yeah, I, I believe that. Right? We're, we're saved by grace. God is the God who redeems. He makes us new. We may have been this thing and he begins to remake us and reshape us and he wants to use us. And we go, yeah, yeah, I believe that. At least intellectually, theologically, the way we hold those things together, we'll go, yeah, yeah, I think I get that. But I think the problem is sometimes we have trouble believing that in our functional theology as we walk that out. We go, yeah, that's true. But. And then what happens is, is our heart is deceitful. The sinfulness of our heart starts to kind of wear on us. We've talked about this a lot. All sin is walking in unbelief in a moment. Doesn't mean that you're not saved. Doesn't mean that you don't love Jesus. It doesn't mean that God's not remaking you. But in the day to day and the, the uh, circumstances of life, you can start to operate in unbelief. And you go, yes, I believe that God has saved me and he's forgiven me and he can use me. And then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, but you don't know all the stuff I used to do. And in that moment, we start to walk in unbelief. And so I think there's there's some ways that we miss this real clear teaching that God can and wills use anyone just some in some practical ways. And one of those that I see is, is I've heard people in the midst of sin or, or a failure in their life and they realize there's some things that are not good and God's bringing a healthy conviction. But then the way that they, they process that is, is I need to get myself together. I need to get some good days going and then maybe I'll step into doing these other things. I've had people tell me that. I've invited them to come to the church and to be here and they're like, there's some things I need to work out before I actually start coming to church. You're like, well, what? But, but that understanding that we do a lot of times or we, or we go, I, I want to get things together and then I'll talk to God about this. I've heard that asked before. When God is bringing a healthy conviction in your life for some sin in your life, how long does it take you to turn and talk to him about it? Sometimes our street level, our functional theology is, yes, I know I sinned and now I'm going to try to string some good days together and then I'll go to God. When we operate that way, we're not believing that God is gracious. We're not believing that God saves us by what Jesus has done and it is his righteousness and not our own. We're operating in a works based righteousness. If I have some good days, then I'll be more acceptable to God. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is not true. It is because of what Jesus has done and nothing else. Your righteousness is secure in Christ. And when we start to think that way, we're operating in unbelief and it can be so subtle. It can even be born out of some good uh, intentions. Right. I, I want to be more pure and more holy and I want to seek God and then I'll go to him. And all the while he's standing there saying, come to me, all you that are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I will take your failures. I've already paid for them. You don't have to wait two days or a week. 
You don't have to string together some good days. You come to me in the moment when there is sin in your life and you find forgiveness. But oftentimes we can say, I believe that and I know that, but that's not the way we live. Or that's not the way we walk it out. Uh, or maybe give you another way we miss it at different times. They always say, yes, God could use me. And I believe that and I believe he's forgiven me. Say first John one nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you say, yes, that is true. And I believe that. But then the next thing you kind of go, yeah, but uh, who am I to tell anybody anything? I'm I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not perfect. I know I've had my issues. So who am I to go around and tell anyone else? And it's this sort of false humility that I can never say anything to anyone else because I'm not perfect in my life. And it sounds very pious. It sounds very humble. Who am I to say? And the answer is it's it's not you who's to say anything. It's God and his word and what he says and who he is. And when we start to think and operate that way, we're actually now walking in unbelief again. We're not believing that God's gracious and that we've been forgiven. And we're not believing that God is glorious and what he says means more than what I say or what people think. And that I can speak the truth even in those moments and do it with great humility. But when we start to kind of play those games in our mind, right? I'm saved by grace, but I'm the worst of sinners. I'm so bad I could never tell anybody anything. And then that becomes our excuse for our disobedience. Our inactivity. Oh, God couldn't use me. I'm barely hanging on here. But the truth is you read through Jonah or you read through the roll call of the faithful in Hebrews 11. And that's exactly the people that God uses. The people that see themselves as desperately needy for God's grace. And so when we start to go into those kind of uh, unbelief feedback loops and we start to talk our way through that, what we're doing is we're walking in unbelief. And we need to hear the gospel afresh again, that it is Jesus righteousness, not our own. And the answer to that, when you see that and you start to come to that understanding is that God can and will use anyone. It's not your strength, it's his strength. It's not your righteousness, it's his righteousness. It's not that you've got it all together, but that God is gracious and you're relying on Jesus at every step of the way. And that's why he can use any and all people. That's why I can call Jonah and say, get up and do this again. It's not ultimately reliant on Jonah, but on the God who calls. And so God can and does use anyone because he is gracious. And so if you're here today and you've fallen into that kind of thinking, I've really blown it. Or or maybe in your mind you listen and you go, yeah, 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 but you don't know what I've done. I just want to say to you. God is bigger than that. Thankfully, wonderfully. Jesus knows every single thing about you, every failure, everything that's ever happened in your life. And he still willingly came to lay down his life for you. There's nothing that takes him by surprise. There's nothing when you're waiting two or three days to go to him and confess that he doesn't already know. And so come to him relying on his mercy and his grace as he waits for you in that continues to pursue you. 
He wants to use any and all people, no matter where you've been. Second thing, though, is how does he use us in that? I think when we read in Jonah chapter three, you pick up with verse four. So Jonah goes, he arose and went to Nineveh. Right. So big change from chapter one says he arose and went down to the port and he got on a boat and he went the other way. This time he arose and he goes to Nineveh. So the first step is he's obedient to what God's calling him to do. And it says Jonah began into the city going a day's journey and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So total repentance. Even the livestock. They say everything, even the animals. We're going to not feed the animals and we're putting sackcloth on them as well. And they start to repent. But the amazing thing is when I read this, Jonah comes in. Verse four is his sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's like the worst sermon ever. Literally half of one verse. And all he says, 40 days and you're all going down. And that's it. And you start to read through and you read in chapter four. and, And I think... Chapter four, verse one says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry when God relents. That maybe just maybe based on chapter four and verse one, he even mailed the sermon in a little bit. He didn't really want it to have this effect. And he's upset when they repent. And so you start to go, well, how does God use us in the middle of that? Well, the first thing is, is that Jonah was obedient this time. He did what God told him to do. He got up and he went into the city and he said what God told him to say. And he he started, even though it was kind of the bare minimum. But what happens? The word of God goes out and it does what it's going to do. We started with Isaiah 55 this morning. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purchase purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so he goes in there and he says what God says and he proclaims the word of the Lord and they repent. It's the same thing that Paul will say in Romans chapter one, when he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And so we start to think about how or who will God use? He can use anyone, but how does he use us? It's in our obedience to profess who he is in his word. And his word does the work through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And there's really good news when we start to think about how God can and will use anyone is the power of what's going to happen is not in you, but it's in the Holy Spirit through the power of God's word. And you're not the one that's going to do it. God's going to do the work. We just have to be obedient. And we continue to point to who he is. Now, that doesn't mean, just so we're clear, that doesn't mean you go and you live however you want and do whatever you want and then just throw in, preach at some people every once in a while. That's not what happened here. He's obedient and he goes in the way God tells him to. Yes, it's going to be in the power of God's word through the spirit and he's going to do it. But at the same time, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you abide in my word and my word in you, you will bear much fruit. And he calls us to this obedience and says, I'm going to work through your obedience, although I'm going to be the one that does it. And it's my power through through God's word that he's going to bring this change. And so it doesn't ultimately rely on you, but he does call us to obedience. And that's good news, because the answer there is we are called to be obedient, obedient. And even when we mess it up, God is gracious And even when we falter, God is gracious and your imperfection doesn't uh, bind God's hands in the work that he's going to do. And that's really good news. That God's working in and through all that. But I want you to think about this for just a second. How does this this truth of, of your call to be obedient, but it's not ultimately dependent on you? How do those go together? Uh, One of my favorite professors in seminary, used to say we always want to live in the center of the biblical tension. That there's things that kind of go together and it's like it's, it's not you being perfect that saves anyone. But you're called to be obedient and it's God's power. And so how do those things go together? And at least part of the answer is that as the gospel comes into your life and God is changing you. And he brings you from death to life and he breathes life into you through his spirit and you become this new creation. Your life is now evidence of the work of God in your life that glorifies him. It's not you. It's not the power of what you're doing, but what God is doing through you. But it begins to show what that looks like. You start to bear witness, not just with your words, but your life that God is doing something in and through you. And then we get to go and proclaim the goodness of who God is and what he's done in our life. And as we begin to sow seeds, God uses that. He uses that to bring people to faith and we get to be part of that. And the good news is that your imperfection doesn't mess that up. In fact, when we start to really understand the gospel, we start to recognize that we're saved by faith through grace, and it's God's doing. Jesus is the one that saved us. When that is true, what happens along the way is you do blow it. But your repentance and your quickness to say so, your quickness to admit your faults and repent becomes evidence of God's work in your life. God is so gracious that he uses even when you stumble and when you blow it to bring glory to his name, because in our repentance, we're showing our desperate need for Jesus all the more. Now, again, the, the, the center of the biblical tension. They asked that of Paul, right? Paul says that is a, a rhetorical question in first Corinthians. So do we sin more that grace would abound? 
Right. You can, you can hear that and go, well, in my re- uh, repentance, I'm showing how good God is. So I'll just go ahead and send all I want. I'll just repent quickly. Well, that's not it either. We're called to obedience. But when those things happen, we repent and we rely on Jesus and we run to him. And it's in his power and his strength. And as we begin to do that and that cycle gets shorter, he continues to to make us into his image, remake us into his image from one degree of glory to another. And the witness is growing. So Jesus says, you abide in my word and you will bear much fruit. And I'm going to show through what I'm doing in you and through you. And so here with Jonah, he goes and he does what God says, even if it's reluctantly, maybe. Even if it's kind of halfway, but he steps out in obedient and God does this great thing. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And then God does the work as the spirit goes out with the proclamation of his word and he does what he's going to do. And we're just called to be obedient as we go out and we do that. So what does that look like? God can use any and all. So that means everyone here. God has a plan to use you for his kingdom and his glory. And so does that mean that you're called uh, to go into the heart of the the evil empire like Jonah was? Probably not. Maybe. Shouldn't say that. Maybe God's going to call you to that place. It's going to call you to go overseas or to some difficult place. Maybe, maybe not. Or does it mean that you need to now become a full-time vocational minister and you're going to preach and teach and do that? Maybe, maybe not. But what it does mean for all of us is that in Christ you are now filled with the Holy Spirit. You have everything that you need and God is going to use you right where he's placed you. With your friends and your co-workers and your neighbors and right in the place that he's placed you. He's surrounded you with people that he is pursuing, that he wants to hear the good news of what he's doing. And he's chosen to allow you to be part of it. We get to do this because of what Christ has done for us. And so I want to give you just a couple ways you can do that daily. Wherever you are, whatever that looks like, whether it's being a full time uh, ministry or missionary or whatever, or just getting up tomorrow and going to your job and where you are. And the first thing I would say to you is we talk about this a lot, but the idea of gospel fluency. Understanding how the gospel pertains to you and then beginning to speak that to those around you. Understanding the good news that Jesus has forgiven you by what he's done and you can rest in that. And then being fluent in the gospel is evangelism. Now, sometimes we narrowly define evangelism as a believer going to an unbeliever and telling them Jesus died for your sins and you can have eternal life, which is true. That is good news. That's what evangel means. Good news. Evangelism is good newsing. It's a verb. You're telling people the good news. But when we talk about gospel fluency, it's more than that. It's the good news to one another in every day and all things. Right. We talked about just a minute ago, the ways in which we're not believing that God is gracious in our life. And so I might say, uh, yes, God has has forgiven me, but I can't do these things because of my past. I need to be evangelized. I need to be reminded of the good news of what God has done for me. And it's not me, but it's Jesus. Yes. 
God is so glorious that what he says is more important than what you think about it or what someone might think of you. And when you care more what people think rather than what God thinks, you're in unbelief and you need to hear the good news again. And we need to be doing that to one another every day as we go, reminding each other of the good news of who God is and what he's done for us. And so as we do that, I want you to think about what that looks like, though. And this is an important part of why we say we want to be uh, family on mission together. It's not just you going to like your neighbors and telling them where they're all in unbelief. Right. If you're the guy that shows up every day with your neighbor in the front yard and go, I'm going to lay out some things on for you today on how your unbelief and I see it. They're going to go, oh, here he comes again. Right? You may not see your neighbor in the yard anymore. They're going to be hiding inside looking. But one of the things as we go on mission together is we're saying those things together as believers and unbelievers are now hearing how God meets all our needs. That doesn't mean you don't share it with them, but it means that as you invite them in, they start to hear how Jesus is the center of everything in your life. I'm sure he wouldn't care of me saying this, but this happened to my house Friday night with Adam. Big Viking Adam is what the guy was calling him. I always call you Viking guy because you're so big. And Adam was standing there telling how God got a hold of his heart through some DUIs in his life. And what God was doing. And he's speaking the truth of the gospel in a way that could relate to the people that don't know it. And he's not saying you need this because you're unbelief. He's saying this is what God has done in my life. And it makes sense. And they're seeing the change in his life. And they're going, wow, that's pretty cool. And it was so well done in the sense of this is how Jesus has met my needs. And this is what he's doing in my life. That it wasn't attacking at all, but it was an invitation. And so we begin to see the gospel in every part of our life. And we speak that way. And we invite people into it. They get to experience what it looks like to be part of the family of God and how Jesus meets our needs. And so when we talk about being on mission together and inviting people into that, that's what we mean. Being fluent in the gospel in every area. I don't know how that opportunity comes if we're not inviting people into that. To experience what it looks like to be part of the family of God. And so through gospel fluency... But then as we do that, and as we walk that out, as the gospel becomes more real to you in your life, in your heart, it makes you more and more gracious. When you start to recognize that all I have is what Jesus has done and nothing else, and I'm resting in his grace to me and my life, you know what happens? When people, uh, you're sitting around uh, in your neighborhood and you hear people kind of gossiping, or maybe it's at work. Or maybe it's at different things. And you find yourself kind of like, I don't really want to be part of that. Almost defending people that you don't even know. And the reason that I find myself doing that, defending people that I don't even know, is because I know how sinful my own heart is and how desperately I need Jesus. And what starts to happen is people are thinking like, why is that guy always defending this person that he's never even met? Or why are they talking about things in these ways? Or why, when someone's ugly, do they not respond with ugliness? You know, the only way that you do that, 
When someone's really ugly to you and the deserved response in our culture is you can go right back at them and everybody goes, that's right, you should tell them. The only way you get past that is realizing that Jesus hasn't done that to you. That I deserve God's wrath, but he hasn't done that to me. And to show people what Jesus is like is to be gracious even when they're ugly. And when that begins to happen, it's what Colossians 2 or Colossians 4, I think what Paul's talking about. So hear what he says in Colossians 4. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So Paul's asking the church to pray for him. He's saying, I'm going to these places and I'm proclaiming the gospel open that the uh, pray that God would open the door that I can continue to do what God's called me to do as an apostle. Right. But then listen to what he says. But then he turns to the church and he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. So as you go in your day, in your work, in your neighborhood, with your friends, with your family, you walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech Always be gracious. Always. Seasoned with salt so that they may know that you may know how to answer each person. What he's saying is when you are gracious to people, when you have become so gospel saturated that you're not going to be the person that gossips, you're not going to be the person who puts people down. You're not going to be the person who goes right back at someone when they're ugly to you. But you're always gracious. People are going to go, what in the world is going on with you? You should have let that guy have it. And then you get to go. You know, God's not given me what I've deserved, but he's given me far greater in Jesus. And they go, oh, what? And it becomes really attractive because they see the truth of your obedience living out in your life in response to what God has done and start to go, whoa. So that's why you do that. That's why you're operating in this way. And Paul says it invokes questions. And then I'd say the last part, and I'll, I'll end with this. Gospel fluency, you live in a way that begins to invoke questions. Then you can invite people into God's word. You can then make that invitation. And so the way we do that here, if you're not familiar or you haven't done it, I would love to go through it with you, is to read through the Gospel of John with people. Invite them to read the Gospel of John. We do a thing where there's two questions for each chapter. You meet for one month, you read five chapters at a time, and you go through it. And you let them spend time coming face to face with what God's word actually says. Exactly what we're talking about here. How does God use us? He uses us through his word as we are obedient and he will do the work. God's word does not return void. And so when you invite someone who's asking those questions to that place where they're open to have those conversations and you invite them to come into God's word, guess what happens? God does what he's going to do. And people come to faith. Because God is the one that's going to do it by the power of his spirit through his word. And we get to be part of it. You know, one of the glorious truths is God doesn't need us to do any of it. But he chooses to allow us to be part of it because he wants us to see up close his work and his glory more fully. We get to do this. And the good news is you can't screw it up because it's not your power to save anyone. 
And so as we think about what God's doing here with Jonah, who he uses, he can use you wherever you are. He wants to use you wherever you are. And how he's going to do it is by his power through his word. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of your word. I thank you for the, the glory of the gospel. That it truly is good news that speaks to the deepest desires and needs of our heart. I pray that you would help us to have eyes to see the people you've placed right in front of us that desperately need to hear the good news. That you would help us to be obedient, even when we're not sure exactly what that looks like, that we would be obedient to follow what you've told us in your word, that we would invite people in, that they could hear the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. I pray that you give us boldness with great humility that is rooted and grounded in our righteousness completely and totally in you and nothing else. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.